Good morning. Luke 9, 18 through 25, and 51 through 62. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. One of the most uh, common ways of thinking about life is as a journey. Um, the idea of life as a journey of transformation, it's one of the most instinctive, enduring, and compelling ideas in all of our lives. So think about the stories and the movies that most capture our imaginations, whether it's Frodo Baggins or Harry Potter or Ray from Star Wars, or even real life stories like Harriet Tubman. What are all those stories about? A seemingly ordinary person living an ordinary life, maybe even a small unseen life. Um, nobody sees them, nobody notices them, nobody expects anything of them, but then they get caught up in some grand adventure. It changes them, it changes the world. We long to be invited into a journey like that, a journey that transforms us and transforms the world. This passage that we just read represent 
the first steps in just such a journey. We are beginning a new series today on a section of the Gospel of Luke that's known as the travel narrative or the journey to Jerusalem. It's a long section in the middle of the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus invites people to follow him. Basically, it's a road trip, but it's unlike any road trip you've ever been on. Um, Jesus is inviting people to follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's actually a very hotly debated question nowadays. In my lifetime, I have never seen a moment like our current cultural moment when that question is being so vigorously debated in public. What is a real Christian? What does it mean, really mean, to follow Jesus? A lot of people have a lot to say about that. I want to invite us to hear what Jesus has to say about that. This travel narrative, that's what this is all about. Jesus inviting people to follow him. Jesus showing people what it means to follow him. Are you looking for a journey of transformation? That is, that is the journey that Jesus is inviting you onto. Um, now, this morning is just an introduction. In this passage, Jesus is he's laying out the basics and he's showing us three big things. He's showing us that following him means revolving around a new center. It means... Um, receiving a new self, and it means that all of that results in a new mercy. It's revolving around a new center, receiving a new self, which results in a new mercy, okay? So first, following Jesus means revolving around a new center. Now, this passage represents a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Up until now, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke, the big question is, who is Jesus? In fact, there's a pattern. Jesus will do something, and then people will ask, well, who is this that forgives people's sins? Or who is this that even the wind and the water obey him? The first eight chapters, the question is, who is Jesus? But here in chapter 9, Jesus turns the question on his disciples, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this amazing insight by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, you are the Christ of God. In other words, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're not just a teacher. You're not just a prophet or a wise man. You're the Messiah of God. You're the one through whom God is, is bringing his redeeming power into the world and healing everything. And, and immediately when Peter says that, it's this amazing insight into the identity of Jesus. But as soon as Peter says that, immediately two things happen. First, Jesus says, Peter, you got it exactly right. I am the Christ of God. But let me tell you what that means. It means that I am going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And then right after that, no sooner has Jesus said that, but the very second thing that happens, he says, now follow me. Do you see that? First, I am a crucified and risen Messiah. Second, follow me. And those two things always have to go together. Uh, so here's what this means. In the first place, you have to understand who Jesus really is. And, and as we go throughout this passage, you see Jesus constantly correcting all kinds of misunderstandings about his identity. So the, this journey to Jerusalem starts in verse 51. It says that... Um, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that means that Jesus is intentionally going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. That's the whole reason he's going there. But then in verse 53, it says that these Samaritan villagers, they reject him. And, um, and, and Jesus 
um, says that, uh, that he's going to Jerusalem to, jo- to die, but when the Samaritans reject him, they're rejecting him. Why? Because his face is set toward Jerusalem. They're rejecting him because they don't understand that he is a crucified and risen Messiah, and therefore they can't follow him. But it's not just the Samaritans. It's also Jesus' own disciples, James and John. When they see the Samaritans reject Jesus, they want to call fire down from heaven. We'll talk more about that later. But, but the point is simple. You notice that Jesus rebukes them. He's saying, you, you guys don't get me either. Nobody understands who Jesus really is. So throughout this passage, Jesus is constantly correcting all of these misunderstandings. He's saying, if you don't understand who I really am, then you can't really follow me. In fact, one of the places this comes out most vividly and actually kind of frighteningly is in a series of conversations Jesus has at the end of this passage with a few would-be followers. In the second of those conversations, if you notice in verse 59, Um, This person says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Now, here's what this means. That first group of dead people, Jesus isn't talking about physically dead people. He can't be. Because physically dead people can't bury other physically dead people. He's talking about spiritually dead people. He's saying that that their hearts and their minds are dead to the reality of who he is, and therefore they can't follow him. And Jesus is constantly correcting all of these misunderstandings of who he really is. He's saying, I am not just a prophet. I am not just a teacher. I am not just a wise man. I am the crucified and risen Messiah, the God of history who has entered the world in order to bring healing through my death and resurrection. That's who he is. Now, like I mentioned, this is one of the most hotly debated questions in our society right now. So for instance, um, Nicholas Kristof writes for the New York Times, over the last few years, uh, he's had a series of columns that, um, in which he asks or interviews well-known Christians, and he asks them, who is Jesus, and, and, and what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? So um, just a few weeks ago, uh, he interviewed Philip Yancey, who's a well-known Christian author. Now, let me say right up front, I am so grateful for Nicholas Kristof and his willingness to have these kinds of conversations publicly in a newspaper like the New York Times. I mean, he takes hits for this. You read the comments section and you can see people getting angry at him for this. They say, you shouldn't be giving airtime to these crazy Christians. So I am really grateful for Nicholas Kristof. He's been a friend to Christians. But Nicholas Kristof is like many people in our culture who tend to see Jesus more as, as a great ethical teacher. And so the question he ends every single one of those interviews with is this. He wants to know, what is someone like myself who deeply admires Jesus' ethical teachings, like the Sermon on the Mount, but is skeptical of things like the virgin birth or the miracles or the physical resurrection? He wants to know, am I a Christian? Jesus is telling us right here. Jesus, notice when he talks to his disciples, he doesn't ask them, what do you think of my ethical teachings? He doesn't say, what do you think of my moral philosophy? He says, who do you say that I am? That is not an ethical question. It's an identity question. 
Jesus is saying, unless you understand who I really am, you can't really follow me. That's the first thing we see. But secondly, when you do see who he really is, you have to make him the center of your life. You have to make Jesus the very center of your whole life. Notice at the end of this passage, Jesus meets, as I mentioned, three potential followers, people who express maybe some desire in following Jesus. In verse 57, the first one says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically, he's saying, are you willing to put me ahead of material and financial security? But then you notice this same pattern goes on. In the second and third conversations, the second person says, let me first go and bury my father. And the third person says, first, let me go and say goodbye to my family. In that culture, um, parents and duty and devotion to family was, it basically came ahead of everything else. Jesus is saying, I have to come ahead even of that. I must be first. You have to put me first in your life. Um, now understand something. Jesus is not saying that things like family or, or parents or marriage or even financial security or career or home or family or any of those things are bad things. He's not saying that. They're, they're really wonderful things. What he is saying is that you have to make me the center of your life. I must come first in your life. So in fact, you see that in these conversations. The, the second person said first. Let me go bury my father. The third person said, first, let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus is saying, you have to make me first. He's saying, something else is first in your life. Do you know what it is? Because something is the center of your life, whether it's career or money or family or romance or relationships or even your own ethical or moral or religious performance. Something is first in your life. Something is the center of your life. And whatever it is, everything else in your life revolves around that center. Everything else comes second or third or even 30th. Jesus is saying, I will not be second in anyone's life. If you're not willing to make me first, if you're not willing to revolve your whole life around me, make me the center of your life, you can't really follow me. That's what he's saying here. Friends, the first thing Jesus is showing us here is that, A, you have to understand who he really is that he is a crucified and risen Messiah. That's who he is, that's why he came. But second, when you see that, you have to make him the center of your life and revolve everything in your life around him. Now that leads to our second point. We've just seen that following Jesus means revolving around a new center. But secondly, it means receiving a new self. In verse 23, uh, Jesus goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, at first glance, that just sounds like another way of saying you have to put me first. And that's true, but it's more than that. Jesus is actually saying, not only must I be first in your life, but you have to receive a whole new self, a whole new identity from me. Because you notice he goes on to say, for whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. Now, when Jesus talks about your life, he doesn't use the word for biological or physical life. That, that would be the Greek word bios, from which we get our word biology. Jesus doesn't use that word. He's not talking about our physical life. When he says you have to lose your life to save your life, 
the word that he uses is the Greek word psyche, which, um, from which we get our word psychology. That's talking about our soul or your inner life, your inner self. Jesus is basically saying, when he says you have to lose your life in order to save your life, he's saying you have to die to your old ways of getting a sense of self and identity and receive a new self, a new identity that I will give you. It's pretty radical. In fact, when we realize this, we'll see it's completely different from every other way of getting a sense of self or identity that the world will offer you. For instance, this is very different from Eastern religious conceptions of self, like especially Buddhism, which says that your experience of being a unique individual self, that's an illusion. And the goal of enlightenment or nirvana, as they call it, is is to be liberated from that illusion of being a unique individual self. In fact, the word nirvana literally means to be blown out like a candle. It, it, it is to say that your experience of being a unique individual needs to be extinguished. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, I do want you to be the self, that, to have that inner life, that, that true self that you were created to be. This is not an Eastern conception of self, but neither is it a Western conception of self. In our modern Western world, the way we get a sense of self or identity is we look inside, we we listen to our heart, we listen to our feelings, and then whatever we find in there, we express that to the world around us. In fact, the foundational idea at the heart of Western identity formation is this idea that, that you are the only one who can define yourself. No one else can do that for you. In fact, we have a motto in our culture, and I'm sure you all know it. Complete this sentence. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you. The only thing that matters is what? What you think of yourself. Where did we learn that? That idea is at the heart of Western identity formation. It's so ingrained in us that we don't even question it for a moment. We just say, well, duh, everybody knows that. But not everybody knows that. Talk to somebody from the Eastern Hemisphere. Talk to a Buddhist. They'll say, if you believe that, you're suffering from an illusion. And you need to be liberated, you poor Westerner you. You see, the Eastern conception of self is obliteration of self. The Western conception is obsession with self. Obsession with self. So much so that, for instance, have you noticed how um, popular Eastern forms of spirituality have become in our culture in the West over the last several years. So um, things like mindfulness meditation, which is a Buddhist practice, or yoga have become incredibly popular. These practices have exploded. And I would say, look, as a Christian, if you engage these things from purely a health perspective, as a form of exercise or stress reduction, you know, fine. But the really fascinating thing to me, have you ever noticed that when companies market these things here in the West, that they have to downplay this Eastern conception of the obliteration of self and uh, repackage these things to appeal to a Western audience that's obsessed with self? So for instance, you know, there are many studies I've read um, showing that Western 
forms or Western practices of mindfulness meditation, which by the way is a $1.2 billion industry in the US, that these Western forms of mindfulness meditation actually have a tendency to make us more self-absorbed, more self-focused, not less. Or I saw an ad um, in Chicago for Lululemon, um, it, it, which is a yoga clothing company. It actually took up the whole side of a building on Rush Street. I was amazed when I saw it. I took a picture of it. Um, the whole ad is a list of benefits that you will experience, I guess, if you buy their product. But the list includes things like compassion. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> compassion, um, patience. Um, acceptance, humility, stillness, meditation, things like that. But then in the midst of that list, it blew me away when I saw it, self-discovery. Not self-obliteration, not self-forgetfulness, no. Nobody would buy those things, at least here in the West, self-discovery. And then at the very end of the list, at the bottom, the tagline that sums the whole thing up in all caps, it says, this is you. It's all about you. In the West, we are obsessed with self. Now, here's the nuance, here's the subtlety that is incredibly important for us to understand. When Jesus talks about losing our life to save our life, he is saying, look, there is a true self that you were meant to be. Let's not miss that. Jesus is saying, yes, there is such a thing as your authentic self. There is such a thing as your true self, and I want you to be that self. But the thing we need to understand is that is not a self that we define. That is not a self that is defined by us or anybody in this world, and it's certainly not a self that's defined by our achievements or our accomplishments or our possessions. In fact, you look at how Jesus ends this section of the passage. He goes on to say, For what does it profit someone to gain the whole world, yet to lose or forfeit their very self? In other words, if you build your identity on things like family or duty or devotion or money or career or romance or relationship or um, any, anything like that, your performance, your achievements, your accomplishments, he's saying you will lose your very self. And the word lose there is a word that means to perish or be destroyed. That if, if you build your identity, if you build your life on these things, you will lose your very sense of self, your very self. He's saying don't do that. Don't let that happen to you. I want you to be the self that you were meant to be. There is such a thing as your authentic self, but it's not a self that you define. So none of these things will endure. If you build your life on anything other than God, anything other than the identity, the self that Jesus gives you, none of those things last. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't mean that these aren't good things. They're wonderful things. They're beautiful things. They're deeply meaningful things, especially the people in your life and your relationships, but none of them last. None of them endure. And when, not if, but when those things end, what happens to you? You end. If yourself is based on those things, then when they fall apart, you fall apart. If they collapse, you collapse. There's no getting around that. Jesus says, I want you to have a self that will never end, that will always endure, that will never collapse. But you have to receive it from me. You have to let me give it to you. Now, um, what does that mean and how does it happen? Jesus is saying, you have to receive a new self from me, a new identity. 
Not an identity or a self that's built on you or, or what you are or what you do, but an identity that's built on me, on who I am and what I have done for you. What does that mean and how does it happen? That's our last point. We've seen that following Jesus means revolving around a new center. It means receiving a new self. But lastly, it, look at the mercy, the new mercy that results from this. Because here's the key to the whole thing. It really comes in the, the weirdest and hardest part of this passage. And judging from what happened when it was read, also the funniest part of the passage. For some reason, I don't know why. This journey to Jerusalem officially starts in verse 51. It says he set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus is intentionally going to Jerusalem to be crucified. But then in verse 53, the Samaritans reject him. And when James and John, his disciples, see this, they get their backs up. They say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? Um, What's going on with that? Well, here's what's going on. Um, Right before this in the Gospel of Luke, James and John had been present to witness something called the transfiguration. They were on a mountain with Jesus, and they saw Jesus revealed in his divine glory and splendor. They also saw Jesus talking with Moses and with another prophet named Elijah. And one of the big points of this whole encounter was to show them that Jesus is greater even than Moses and Elijah. So here they are a little later. They see the Samaritans reject Jesus and and they remember a story about Elijah. Um, In ancient Israel, there was a wicked king named Ahaziah who hated Elijah, wanted to kill him. So he sent messengers to go get Elijah and bring him back so that Ahaziah could kill him. So a a group of messengers show up, Elijah's up on a mountain and they say, man of God, come down. And Elijah calls fire down from heaven, consumes them on the spot. A second group shows up, man of God, come down. Elijah calls fire down on them, consumes them on the spot. A third group of messengers shows up. The leader of that group falls on his knees and says, Elijah, please, <laughs> would you just go see the king? <laughs> they, James and John know this story. It's one of the most famous stories of, uh, uh, about Elijah. And they also know that Jesus is greater than Elijah So they're thinking, surely, if someone comes to take down Jesus, then surely the fire of judgment should come and take them down. But Jesus rebukes them. Notice he does not rebuke the Samaritans. He rebukes James and John. Why? Um, Many years ago, when I lived in New York, I heard the great pastor Tim Keller preach a sermon on this passage. He pointed out something brilliant about this. He says that Jesus is the un-Elijah that yes, Jesus is greater than Elijah, but his greatness makes him different. Because whenever someone comes after Jesus, whenever enemies come to kill Jesus, instead of calling down fire from heaven, Jesus does the exact opposite. So for instance, a little later, when, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest him, to take him away to be executed, one of the soldiers gets his ear cut off in a scuffle. Jesus heals the guy. Or after that, when Jesus is crucified, they're pounding the nails into his hands. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Every time an enemy comes to kill Jesus, he doesn't seek revenge or retribution. He doesn't try to cancel them. 
Jesus seeks their healing. He seeks their restoration. He seeks their well-being. Instead of calling down fire, Jesus calls down mercy. How can he do that? Why would he do that? Well, the answer comes just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 12. Um, Jesus says, um, I came to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish that it were already kindled. But I have to, a baptism that I have to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now here's what that means. Fire, when Jesus talks about fire, he's talking about judgment. He's saying, oh, I came to bring judgment. The fire of judgment on earth, make no mistake about that. But the fire that I bring is like a baptism. And I am the one who has to be immersed in it. Let me ask you something. Do you think that there are people in this world who deserve judgment? I've been reading articles over the last few days um, that talk about this last decade that we just finished. And a number of the articles kind of all point out something similar. They, They all say that one of the defining characteristics of this decade that we just finished is anger, division, outrage, they, they all point out that we've retreated more and more into our tribes and our echo chambers and that we're all just basically calling fire down on each other. Why? Well, because if you build your identity on anything other than God, then whenever something threatens that thing, whatever it is, your very sense of self is being threatened. You're going to call down fire. We all know instinctively, yes, there are people in this world who deserve judgment. The curious thing is we never seem to include ourselves in that group. You know, we long for justice. We know instinctively when we see evil, we know that that fire should come down and, and punish evil. We know that instinctively, but one of the main questions the gospel forces us to wrestle with is this. How in the world is God supposed to bring judgment in this world without bringing judgment on us? The answer is Jesus is the un-Elijah. The fire of judgment came down on him so the mercy of God could come down on us. On the cross, Jesus said, I'll take the fire. I'll take the judgment. I'll take the justice. Let the fire come down on me, God, so that, that your mercy and your love and your grace and your healing and your restoration can come down on them. That's who Jesus is. That's the whole reason that he came, to transform you, to define you by an overwhelming radical experience of love, grace, and mercy. Friends, the the message of the gospel is that you are not defined by what you do. So how many of you, you know, when you're doing well in life, when you're kind of living up to your expectations for yourselves, when you're kind of hitting your goals, you know, you feel good about yourselves, right? But, but if you fail, if you stumble, if you mess up, if you blow it, if you fail to hit the mark or, or achieve the goal that you were shooting for, what happens? Down comes the fire. The, the, the incrimination, the, the recrimination, the shame, the fear, the condemnation. We feel horrible about ourselves. Why? Because we think that we're defined by what we do. The gospel says you are not defined by what you do. You're defined by who loves you. The radical message of the gospel is that the cross of Jesus Christ is a love, is, is, it, it defines you, it gives you a whole new basis for a sense of self and identity. That the love of Jesus 
defines you. It gives you a whole new sense of self. The more you see Jesus on the cross dying for you, the more that redefines you. Do you want to know what Jesus thinks of you? Look at him hanging on the cross, loving you, dying for you, sacrificing himself for you. That is a whole new identity. That is a whole new sense of self. It completely transforms you. And what does that mean for us? Well, let me just offer us a a few brief thoughts before we close. First, this means that following Jesus, remember, it's a process. It's a, it's a journey. This whole long section in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, it's a journey. That means that the, the soul-defining love of Jesus Christ means that, that, um, that you can be honest about your faults and your sins and your failures um, without, um, without condemning yourself. It means that that you can um, have mercy on yourself without making excuses for yourself. It means that that we should never have less mercy on ourselves than Jesus has on us. Because this is a process. It's a journey. It means you are going to stumble. You're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. But we should never have less mercy on ourselves than Jesus has on us. We can be honest about our mistakes and our failures without making excuses for them. But, but, but still have mercy on ourselves, okay? But second, this means when you receive this soul-defining love of Jesus, that means that, that for the first time, you're actually able to start loving the people and things in your life more, not less. Because it's easy to think, well, Jesus is saying, I must be first, I must be the greatest love in your life. That means we hate and reject everything else in our life. No, it's the exact opposite. The more you love Jesus, the more you make him the center of your life, then the less you will demand that all the other things in your life bear all of the weight of giving you the security and the significance that you need. Putting all of that weight on those things, that's not loving them, it crushes them. But when you shift all of that weight onto Jesus, when you receive the self and the identity that he gives, all of a sudden, for the first time, you are now able to love these things, treasure these things, and serve these things for the first time without demanding or expecting anything of them. Thirdly, following Jesus, when you see the fire of judgment came down on Jesus so the mercy of God could fall on you, That means that for the first time, we're able to start having a new mercy for the others around us that do deserve judgment. Because when you see that you deserved judgment, but instead of fire, you got mercy, all of a sudden that brings a new mercy into your life for all the other people that you would be inclined to call fire down on. And understand, that doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. That does not mean that we don't pursue justice. We do. But the reason we pursue accountability and justice in this world is not for those people's destruction, but for their well-being and their restoration. Do you genuinely want to see the restoration and the well-being of people that you would be inclined to condemn and call fire down on them? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the soul-defining love of Jesus The mercy-bestowing sacrifice of Jesus doesn't just make it possible. It makes us actually want that. Dear ones, you're not defined by what you do. You're defined by who loves you. Make Jesus the center of your life. Receive the new self that he offers you. And let all of that result in a new mercy. Mercy towards yourself. A greater love for the people and the things around you 
and also a new mercy towards the people around you that you would be inclined to condemn or call fire down on. Step out on the road with Jesus. Take up your cross and follow him. You will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you um, see everything about us, you know everything about us, and you would be justifiably, um, you would bring the fire down on us, Lord. And we acknowledge that, we confess that, but we also praise you that, um, that you are a God of love and grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, you came not to, not to bring judgment on, air, on us, but to bear judgment for us so that mercy could be poured out on us because that's who you are, a merciful, compassionate, gracious, loving God. We pray that you would um, transform us more and more by the knowledge, by the experience, Lord, that you died for us, you loved us on the cross. We pray that the more we see that, the more we would make you the center of our life. We pray that the more we would be able to rest in that new self that you give us, and we pray that you would make us um, ever more um, capacious uh, vessels of that mercy that you want to pour out on the whole world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.